Howdy, everyone, and thank you again for tuning in to the Jeffersonian Tradition. Before we get started, I have a couple of things to go over. I want to keep bringing y'all high-quality content, but I cannot do that without your support. So please, help buy me a cup of coffee every month and join the Ward Republic by chipping in $5 per month through the supporting listener link in the show notes page. I am not part of a fancy podcasting network, and I don't like the restrictions that come along with certain advertising campaigns. So I am coming to y'all with my hat in my hand. So please help me keep this show going and keep it independent by doing your part and chipping in. If you're not comfortable with a recurring contribution model, I do also have a Cash App profile for the show. So one-time contributions can be sent there. And all of this information is listed in the show notes page as well. And don't forget that Ward Republic membership includes a monthly video conference with myself and the other Ward Republic members. And support monetary freedom today and head over to our sponsor at www.defythegrid.com to purchase your gold bags. I have an affiliate link in the show notes page, and if you use it, I will get a 1% commission, so that'll also help keep the show going. So click on my link in that show notes page and fuel monetary decentralization today. And if you aren't on MeWe yet, then seriously, what are you waiting for? Unlike a certain other social media platform, MeWe respects the right to free speech and offers a privacy bill of rights. So if you'd like to be a member there, then download the MeWe app and search for me at the username Mr. Jeffersonian. The show group is private, so we must be contacts before I can send you the group invite. With all of that fun stuff out of the way, let's now turn our attention to the topic for today's episode. Good morning, fellow citizens. This is Mr. Jeffersonian. It is 5 a.m. on Saturday, March 25th here in the great state of Colorado. And today we are going to be talking about the recent happenings in the financial world, namely what could be the collapse of the banking system here in the United States as well as abroad in Switzerland. So in the States, uh, if y'all are not aware, since last we spoke, we have had at least three bank failures. That would be Silvergate Capital, SVB, or Silicon Valley Bank, and Signature Bank in New York. And then in Switzerland, we had the collapse of Credit Suisse, who is now going to be taken over by UBS, with a ton of government guarantees and backstops. So we're going to talk about a lot of this stuff we're going to approach this from a Jeffersonian point of view to see what it would take to actually fix this if the goal was to fix it versus what we seem to be doing. So before we get started, though, I do want to make a pretty major announcement as far as the show is concerned. Unfortunately, monetary support for the show has just not materialized to the extent that I needed it to to keep this a primary focus. So here, somewhat soon, I will be re-entering the workforce. I actually got an offer, so I, I'm not sure exactly when I'm going to be starting that job. But once that happens, uh, come April 1st, I'm also going to be starting my master's program. So I want to be transparent. This show will no longer be a primary focus for me. I do plan on continuing to try to record episodes, hopefully at least once a month. When we get back to them, I'm going to pivot back to the War for Southern Independence in the long view. Once I complete that, we will see. But the show at that point may have run its course because one of my big primary motivations for starting the show to begin with was to fully vindicate the South to the fullest extent that my meager ability would allow me to do so when it came to their struggle for independence. 
So it has been a blast. Um, for all my support and listeners who did contribute monetarily, I cannot say thank you enough. You guys have been wonderful. It, it has been awesome month to month getting to meet up with y'all during the Ward Republic meetings. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for those who did contribute monetary support to the show. Uh, for those who did not, I, I hope you found value in the content that I was able to release. And I, I don't have any hard feelings. Um, it's just, you know, I, I needed this show to be a little bit more profitable for me to keep doing it because we now have a child and our income situation has changed a little bit. And my spouse is, is ready to be a full-time mom, and I want that for her. So it is what it is. Uh, but again, for those who did contribute, all my Ward Republic members, you know who you are. And again, I cannot say thank you enough. So with all that out of the way, though, let's go ahead and get back to the topic at hand, which is going to be the banks. And to start this part of the conversation, I'm going to say first and foremost, it is my opinion that the problem really does begin with the fact that banks can be publicly traded. So I'll explain that a little bit more in depth throughout the episode. But let's take a detailed look at what happened with SVB or Silicon Valley Bank in particular. And that, that's going to be the only one that we really focus too much on the nitty gritty of what happened to cause their collapse. But then we're going to talk about, again, some of these other banks that have failed and how I believe this system could be remedied if the goal was to actually fix it, which unfortunately, cynically, I don't think it is. But... Let's talk about SVB. So formed on October 17th, 1983, SVB Financial Group was the parent company of Silicon Valley Bank, hereafter just referenced as SVB. And it was a financial holding company that specialized in lending to startup companies in the technology space. So obviously during the tech boom of the 0% interest rate period of the last 15 years, they have or experienced tremendous growth because they were lending to these technology companies that were borrowing money at 0% and they were charging them, you know, anywhere from probably 5, 15, 20% interest. Now, interestingly, it was founded by two former Bank of America managers, Bill Biggerstaff and Robert Medeiros. And this was not your regular regional bank, as it seems the only individual account services it provided were to high net worth folks via their private banking channel. Aside from that demographic, the bank focused exclusively on corporate banking services for venture capital and technology firms. And you probably already see why they're getting bailed out, but I don't want to steal too much of my thunder for the remainder of this episode. So let's go back in time a little bit. Everybody remembers the helicopter money that was thrown out like candy back in 2020 and 2021. SVB received an insanely high amount of deposit inflows from that cheddar because its clients were rushing to secure PPP loans and the like. Now, one thing to pay special attention to here is that deposits represent both an asset and a liability to banks simultaneously. They are assets because they represent the vast majority of a bank's lending capacity but from an accountant standpoint, they're only looked at as liabilities because those funds can be withdrawn, allegedly, at any time by the account holders if the funds are held in a current account and not a time account. So if you have your money in a checking or savings account, theoretically, you can go withdraw it at any time versus if you put the funds in a CD, you are basically telling the bank, hey, I'm going to loan you money so you can loan it to somebody else for a given amount of time be that six months, 12 months, 18 months, what have you. 
you are explicitly telling the bank, hey, I'm giving you access to this money and I will not touch it for X amount of time. And Investopedia defines the issue as follows, quote, the deposit itself is a liability owed by the bank to the depositor. Bank deposits refer to this liability rather than to the actual funds that have been deposited. When someone opens a bank account and makes a cash deposit, he surrenders the legal title to the cash and it becomes an asset of the bank. In turn, the account is a liability to the bank. So think about what that means. So from a legal standpoint, I haven't really heard of this in several years, but there was a point in history back around maybe 2014, 2015, where there was a big debate about who actually owned the money in a bank account. Did the bank own the money and they just gave you the right to draw on it, or did you own the money and the bank just had the ability to lend off of it? And I don't know what the full outcome of that is. I can tell you from my perspective, the bank is really just acting as a custodian and they, yes, they can lend off of it, but the money is still yours. And this was a big issue back around that 2014, 2015 period because of the bail-ins that were taking place in the Greek banking system. So that that was a wild time. That, that was a very wild time. And it pre- presented a lot of really interesting questions. And in my opinion, really exposes the fraudulent nature of fractional reserve banking. But we're going to look at this too from a libertarian perspective because Murray Rothbard was rock solid on this particular issue, in my opinion. And we can immediately see that banks are operating in a very precarious situation at all times since the vast majority of their deposits are typically held in those current accounts. Very few people, relatively speaking, now get CDs. And Murray says, or Murray defined this problem as a bank operating in a state of unrealized and constant bankruptcy at any and all times. So this, it, the entire system because of this relies on mass buy-in from depositors. And if you don't have that depositor confidence, you get what's called a bank run, which is a, it was what happened to SVB was a good old fashioned bank run facilitated at warp speed by smartphones, tablets, computers, and all other forms of technology. So you may be thinking, okay, well, Mr. Jeffersonian, they received a huge influx of deposits, but what's the big deal? And I'm glad you asked. With this huge influx of cash, SVB was unable to find profitable outlets to lend out all of it. So instead of them keeping it as liquid cash on their books, they decided to make some investments in long-term government bonds. So while interest rates were swiftly taken down to basically nothing during that 2020 to 2021 period, the bank decided it was going to start buying up billions of these bonds And they were buying 10-year, on average, 10-year treasury notes that were only yielding an average of 1.79% based on the last financial filings that I looked at for them. Now, this caused the value of these 10-year bonds to crater now here in 2022 and 2023 since rates have risen dramatically over the past year to a current 10-year yield of 3.9%. And I think it may have actually even surpassed the 4% threshold by a small amount uh, here in the last couple of weeks. But we have to understand before we move forward here, we have to understand how bonds work. So when you purchase a bond, you are purchasing a share of debt, be that from the government, a corporation, whatever. You're purchasing a share of debt. And you will get those bonds either at a premium or a discount, depending on what interest rates are doing at the time. So if you're in a period where rates are being lowered, 
and you have bonds on your books currently that have locked in rates of say 5%, but now rates have been lowered to 2%, well, your bonds become a lot more valuable because you get a higher rate of return on that money. So those bonds would trade at a premium. But if you're in the reverse situation where you're in a period of rising interest rates and you have a bond that's yielding, say, in SVB's case, 1.79%, but now you can go out and get 4%, well, your bonds are pretty worthless. So bonds are, they, they have an inverse relationship with interest rates. If interest rates go up, then the face value of the bond goes down. If interest rates go down, then the face value of the bond goes up. So it, it's it's weird to think about that because on one hand, it shouldn't really matter if you're going to hold those bonds to maturity. You're not really going to lose money. But the big issue comes when you either want to sell them or you're forced to sell them, which is what happened with SVB because, again, then you're getting a, you're getting back a lot less than what you put into it. Now, this situation by itself with SVB buying these bonds wouldn't have been too much of an issue if the bank didn't have to sell the holdings, which we kind of explained that. But a rush-up withdrawals from their cash-hungry clientele forced the bank to sell the bonds, and they had to realize a $1.8 billion loss, which they wanted to cover by raising new capital through a huge $2.5 billion stock offering. So let's stop and think about that for a second. So you have this bank who is obviously in trouble as far as liquidity goes. Their solution is, well, we'll just water down the stock and we'll go out and issue all this new equity. And so this became a very vicious cycle because this loss and proposed shareholder dilution sent the bank's investors into a frenzied fire sale, which became part of that negative feedback loop that spurred more account holders to demand their funds, which culminated with SVB having a cash balance of negative $1 billion and being shut down and taken over by the FDIC on March 10th, 2023. And because of its customer base, more than 85% of SVB's deposits were not covered by FDIC insurance until they were, because the FDIC said, nope, actually, we're going to ignore the statutory limit that we have on deposits, and we're going to cover all, all of y'all. But more on that in a minute. And thus, the second largest bank failure in U.S. history sent shockwaves through the entire banking system. And we may be just in the beginning stages of the fallout, as almost all regional bank stocks have been absolutely rocked over the past two weeks. But let's now start to ask some bigger questions here regarding the nature of banks being publicly owned and traded and how that basically ensures they will never be allowed to fail and flush out the bad actors. And this section of the episode is going to sound very familiar because I, I'm basically going to be using some of the same arguments that we discussed whenever we were talking about the Southern Agrarians from Who Owns America. So if you recall those episodes against the corporate form, you're going to hear a lot of overlap here. But I do think we should start this section of the episode with the question, why do companies typically decide to go public? And the answer to that inevitably involves the desire to expand faster or beyond the constraints that organic growth could facilitate. And what I mean by that is, think about what we said with SVB. Their solution was they wanted to just go out and create a whole bunch of brand new shares out of thin air and sell those for $2.5 billion. Now, before we get too far into this, we also need to understand the difference between the primary market and the secondary market when it comes to stocks. So the primary market is when a bank actually underwrites an equity issue, right? So you would have a bank such as SVB. They're not going to underwrite their own sell for the most part. 
they're going to go to a different bank, maybe like Goldman Sachs in this case, or they could maybe go to JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, whatever. And they're going to say, hey, we want to sell this much in new equity. Will you underwrite our securities? And basically that investment bank will say yay or nay. If they say yes, then what happens is they will underwrite either all or a significant portion of that new equity issue. And they're the ones who actually float the money to the company who's going public or who is doing the round of equity increase. So if Goldman Sachs had been able to do this, then what would have happened is SVB would have gotten the money from Goldman Sachs. And then you as an individual, you're purchasing those shares from Goldman Sachs. You're not actually purchasing the shares from SVB. So that's something that we need to understand. When you invest your money, you are not actually parking money with the company you're investing with because they they already got their money from the underwriting bank. When you invest, you're going through the secondary market and you're either getting it from the underwriter if you're an institutional investor or in reality, you're just buying it from somebody else, some other individual, maybe some pension or hedge fund who's deciding to sell at any given point in time. So if you wanted to go buy a share of Apple, in all likelihood, you might be buying that share from me if I just so happen to be selling a share of Apple at that given point in time. You're not getting it from Apple. You're not parking your money with that company in the secondary market. All you're doing is kind of going in there and you're you're competing against everybody else saying, well, I'm bullish on it, so I'm going to buy it, or I'm bearish on it, so I'm going to sell it. And you don't even necessarily have to be bearish when you sell. It may just be that, hey, I, I feel that I've made enough on this. I want to take some of my profits off the table and actually realize those gains. So, But anyway, that's important to understand. These banks or, the, or any publicly traded corporation, when they enter the market to do a new round of equity sales, they get their money in the primary market from the bank that underwrites it. And then it's up to that other bank to sell those shares and try to make a profit or try to sell them at a premium. Now, also by going public, a company gains access to almost limitless financial resources from the billions of people that constitute the world's population, as well as huge institutional money from governmental and union pension plans and investment firms like BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street Capital, Berkshire Hathaway, etc. And this allows the company to swiftly expand operations and try to take over a larger share of its market sector. With banks, it's my opinion that this produces a particularly nasty moral hazard. And from the first banking job I ever had, it was at a publicly traded bank, I saw firsthand how much of a conflict of interest that it created. And let, let's dive into that a little bit. So in the abstract, does it make more sense for a bank to be, air quotes, owned by its depositors or its account holders or by a group of outside investors who may have no real financial interest in the bank? Because remember what I said, when you are an investor, you're not actually parking your money with that company. Now, yes, you're betting on the company's success, but you don't actually have too much direct skin in the game because... Their policies, as far as how they treat the accounts, they don't really impact you too much as an investor. Whereas if you're a depositor and the bank says, well, hey, we're going to have this really onerous overdraft policy so we can pump up revenue, you're really getting shafted, but it's your money that the bank's using to lend and make its profits. It's not the investor's money. That's what I want y'all to take away from this is that banks are 
a really bad example of what happens when you focus strictly on the shareholder model because the shareholders are kind of a third party who get wedged in and can be wielded or, or be looked at as, as a way to screw your depositors for the benefit of a third party who may not really have too much interest in the bank's day-to-day operations or how they treat their accounts or the policies they have around the accounts. And to some extent, investors have a totally different goal for owning those shares than depositors do for putting their money there. So if you're an investor, you're hoping that the share price will appreciate over time or that the bank will pay dividends or at worst that the share price will stay flat and you still get the benefit of dividends or whatever. So with that, or stock buybacks even, So with that, think about the flip side of that. Depositors want the lowest fees possible. They want to know that their money will be protected so that they can withdraw it whenever they need it. And investors are saying, no, you need bank, you need to pump up your revenue. I don't care what it takes. If you have to charge $35 for an overdraft fee, then by God, do it. And again, depositors have a completely diametrically opposed position on that. They say, no, we want fees to be as low as possible because we, you know, we, we chose you for a reason bank and it's our money that you're using to make all these loans that you're using to pay out these dividends to the investors while we're sitting here getting jack shit for interest on these deposits. And it is for this reason exactly that my wife and I chose to move all of our primary bank into a local credit union several years ago. Credit unions are owned by their members, or in other words, their depositors. Publicly traded banks, on the other hand, are theoretically owned proportionately by their shareholders. And what has that meant for the depositors who provide the funds for banks to use as a lending base to make their billions? Well, let's take a look. The average annual percentage yield or APY on savings accounts since 2008 has been 0.11%. And you heard that correctly. The average yield on a savings account has been 11 hundredths of 1% for 15 years now. And let's compare this with the average dividend yield of some miscellaneous banks over that same time period. So Regions Bank, that's a bank I actually do invest in. I'll, I'll be transparent. I do invest in banks, even though I don't agree with them being publicly traded, because I am a dividend investor. But regions right now, their dividend yield equates to a little bit over 4%. If you go to JP Morgan, their dividend yield is roughly 3%. If you go to Discover, I believe their dividend is somewhere around 3 to 4% as well. You get the point. A lot of the banks right now that are publicly traded, their dividend is sitting somewhere between 3 and 5%. Uh, Citizens Financial Group is another one. I think theirs is, is probably sitting around 5% right now. So again, the investors, they bought their shares from somebody else. It's not their money that the bank's using to go out and do all these different things. It's the depositor's money. So when you make your deposit with the bank, again, I, this is the big takeaway here. When you deposit your money at a bank, it is your money that the bank uses as its lending base. It's not the investor's money. So the investors are kind of just sitting there as a third party skimming off the top, in some way being a leech, in my opinion, myself included, for the bank stocks that I have. So 
you're skimming off the top and screwing your depositors. And again, it's a conflict of interest because the investors just want to see top line revenue growth. They want to see bottom line profit growth, this, that, and the other. While the depositors are saying, well, we just want to make sure our money's safe and we want fees to be as low as realistically possible. And we also want to get better interest rates if we have to borrow money from you. And that's another benefit of credit unions. Although, unfortunately, now that, that's getting to be less of a benefit because credit unions have kind of taken the path of banks in some ways. But at credit unions, typically, you can save a, a little bit of money on interest. In the past, you had bigger savings there. But now, again, the spread is not as big as it used to be. So in the past, you actually might could save a, about 1% or 2% by going through a credit union versus a big bank. Whereas now you might be talking about a half a percent or the rates in some cases may be roughly the same. So again, the big takeaway here is that banks give you peanuts for your precious trust of depositing your money there while extending loans and credit cards to you at 10% or more, while some hedge fund or other corporate entity gets the benefit of a 2 to 4% dividend yield from them and enjoys the benefits of the ultra-low corporate borrowing rates of the last 15 years by borrowing your money and charging you an arm and a leg for whatever product or service they're trying to peddle. Because again, when, when a bank loans out its depositors' money, corporations are inevitably going to get access to some of those funds. So they're borrowing your money, and then those same corporations that are getting the dividends or the hedge funds that are getting the dividends from your bank, well, then you go and buy their products or services, and they're charging you an arm and a leg and blaming inflation for it. So there's a lot of corruption in this system. And then these same banks have the audacity to claim that their net interest margins are threatened. Folks, again, this is a rotten system all the way down to the core, and we're just really scratching the surface. And let's just look at a couple of the other obvious conflicts of interest here. So again, one thing, and I, I hate this one, this one's probably the worst in my opinion, is that because the shareholders are acting as that kind of leachy third party, the banks have incentives to nickel and dime account holders to hit revenue goals. So JP Morgan Chase, their overdraft fee policy, $34 per transaction when the account is overdrawn by more than $50. There is a maximum of three of those charges per day for a total of $102. So that, it, that adds up because if you have somebody who's poor, and I saw this all the time when I worked in a bank, I saw this all the time. When you have somebody who's poor, they get stuck in a vicious, vicious cycle because those excuse me, those overdraft fees will just add up and then their paycheck is not enough to cover their living expenses. And it's like the first time it happens, it's almost impossible to stop it because now every month they're going to be running a shortage. And over time, that shortage just gets bigger and bigger and the overdraft fees just keep piling up. So you have a very perverse incentive there. And banks, too, a lot of them, now, thank God, this seems to have disappeared over about the last three to four years. But if you go back to before about 2018, 2019, a lot of these banks, even the big mega banks who you would think didn't really need this, a lot of them would also even charge you for overdraft protection transfers. So overdraft protection, the way that it works in general is you will link your savings account and say, okay, if I have something that would come through and overdraft my checking account, just automatically transfer this from the savings account. That way it'll at least get paid. Let's say your rent, for example, you don't want to have to worry about your rent bouncing. 
So you would say, okay, I'm going to have this overdraft protection to make sure I'm covered and I'll just make sure I have enough money in savings to cover this in, in case anything happens. Well, the banks would actually even charge you, again, prior to about 2018, 2019, most of the banks would charge you to do that transfer. So think about that. You can either pay a $34 overdraft fee from Chase or you can set up overdraft protection and then if you ever use it, they would still charge you probably about $12. That, that was about the average for overdraft protection transfers, uh, 12 to 15. So it's crazy to think about that because that's your money. All the bank is doing is, is a transfer. At the end of the day, if you had gone in and done that transfer on your own, it doesn't cost you one red cent. But because it was automated, well, hey, we're, we're going to have to charge you a fee here. Again, thank God, it seems that banks have finally started getting away from that. Um, I, I'm kind of conflicted on how I feel about that, only because now that the big banks are doing that, it, it is going to kind of take some of the allure away from credit unions and smaller community banks. But overall, I think that's a net positive because that that is disgusting rent-seeking nickel, nickel and diamond. That That's all that is. Now, Another conflict of interest is something we mentioned before, stock buybacks to placate investors versus getting the best rates for your depositors or being able to lower fees for your depositors. So why should a bank be buying back shares of its stock when it could otherwise put that money to use to better the situation for its account holders, again, in the form of lower interest rates or in the form of lower fees? It, that to me does not make a lot of sense. If they're spending billions on, or well, not even billions, we'll, we'll say tens of millions on stock buybacks and tens of millions or hundreds of millions on dividend payments, that all that money should, in my opinion, rightfully have been put back to use for the benefit of the depositors and not really been used for shareholders, my opinion. So how do we fix this? If these are some of the big issues with publicly traded banks, then how do, how do we fix this? And how do we make sure that we're not going to see the government getting involved over and over again to bail out these banks and bail out, in SVB's case, these huge corporate clients? Uh, Roku, for example, had all of their operating money tied up with SVB. So we're not talking in this particular case, small mom and pop investors. We are talking very sophisticated uh, or I'm sorry, not investors, but account holders. We're talking very sophisticated corporate account holders who knew the risk of having that much money tied up in a bank, and yet they're still getting a bailout from the FDIC because the FDIC said, well, we're going to guarantee all these deposits 100% regardless of the balance. So how do we fix it, though? Well, first and foremost, I think every, every publicly traded bank should be delisted. That, that would be a start. And if that means that investors don't get anything in return and that bondholders don't get anything in return, honestly, at this point, so be it. And I think then every bank needs to be forcefully restructured to where it basically operates like a credit union and the bank or the, the funds are actually owned or the banks themselves or the, the institutions are owned by the depositors. Now, with that, you can still have a board. You, you're still going to have some managerial discretion because the bank does need some responsibility or, or some authority to act unilaterally to pursue opportunities with those funds. But you make them subject to the sole 
interest of the depositors, and you you just completely eliminate that conflict of interest by having a third party in there with investors. And again, credit unions already do this. Like at a lot of credit unions, when you get your savings account there, they they will tell you, well, hey, you your dollars represent this many shares. So every dollar basically shows one share. Uh, that that's how some of them do it. So that, in my opinion, is how you fix this. First, you delist the publicly traded banks and you make them subject to the control of their depositors. Or in the event that it's a small small bank that's family-owned, then, then fine. They have every right. If they are the ones who put up the initial capital for the bank to be successful, then sure, they, they should have more authority than their depositors. But in every other case where, where you don't have that and you just have banks that have gotten so big, you turn them over to sole control of their depositors, and then you outlaw fractional reserve banking. And that needs to start with the states. I don't think the states have the backbone to do it, unfortunately, but we damn sure know that the federal government's not going to do anything about that. So I would love to see the states stand up and say, henceforth in the state of Kentucky and the state of Ohio and the state of California, wherever, you will not perform or engage in fractional reserve banking because it is fraud. And this is where libertarians still just, some of them at least, they, they can't seem to get it through their thick skulls that fractional reserve banking at all times is fraud. Even if you disclose what you're doing up front, it is still fraud. If you give me $100 and then I turn out around and lend out that $100 and you come back to me to claim your money and I don't have it, it's fraud. That's all it is. And, and it's a huge inflationary mechanism within the modern American economy because you can turn with, with a 0% reserve requirement, you can actually turn one single $100 deposit into $1,000 of new money by the time it works its way through the system. That's what's known as the multiplier effect. So think about that. If private so-called banks can turn $100 of loan money into $1,000 of new money, think about the effect of that when you start talking about these big commercial deals that get up into the millions of dollars, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, Think about the impact that has. It's highly inflationary. So if you if you were ever going to be serious about trying to crush inflation, yeah, government policy needs to change as far as spending and debt is concerned, but you're also going to have to eliminate fractional reserve banking because private banks themselves can pump up the money supply by a factor of 10 if they're not required to keep anything on reserve, which for current accounts or demand accounts, that's the current reserve ratio set by the Federal Reserve. It's a terrible system. So the way to address that, in my opinion, is you go to a full reserve system based on time deposits, based completely on time deposits. So your demand accounts, your checking and savings accounts, you're going to say, well, look, these are completely these are completely out of bounds. You cannot use these to make any sort of loans against them. You must keep these as 100% reserves. But then for your time accounts, you can say, okay, well, look, as long as you're matching up your lending terms with what your time account terms are, it's fine. We, we don't have a problem with that. So you could offer seven-year CDs, 10-year CDs, and, and banks already do that. I, I mean, seven- and 10-year CDs are out there. Uh, you could even have longer-term ones if, if you're going to have longer-term projects. But then you can only lend off of your CD base. 
So if you have, and at that point, people would, our depositors would have to get a fair rate of interest to be willing to lock up their money for that long. No more of this bullshit of, well, we're going to give you, you know, 0.10% or 0.01% while we turn around and charge all these other people 15% for a credit card. Yeah, no more of that. If you're going to lock up my money or if you want me to lock up my money for 10 years, then you have to give me at least, say, 4 or 5%, or back in the 80s, even as much as 12 to 15%. So that's how you fix it if you're serious about fixing the system. You delist the banks. You basically say, you know what, I don't really care what happens to the investors and bondholders. And you turn control of the banks over to the depositors and make them the actual owners of the institution. And then you get rid of fractional reserve banking by going to a full reserve system based on time deposits. So those are my thoughts here. The The last thing that we're going to talk about is Credit Suisse, just because th- this was a really disgusting example of a, of a government bailout. And what's going on here is Credit Suisse has been in the toilet for several months now. Actually, I think starting back around September or October, there, there was already rumblings that they may be going under. Um, now they officially have. And UBS bought them for an absolute steal. Uh, Credit Suisse had a market cap, I believe, of about $9 billion, give or take, uh, maybe about $8 billion. And then UBS was allowed to buy them out for about $3.5 billion, which the Swiss government pretty much said, hey, we got your back. Don't worry about it. So... With that being said, now the Swiss people are going to be on the hook for an additional $13,500 each. So th- this is, I mean, it's just disgusting. It is absolutely disgusting. And then you had some bondholders get wiped out in this fiasco. I don't really feel too bad for them because those particular bonds, they were called AT1 bonds. They were literally written to say they were perpetual bonds. The bank has no obligation to ever pay them back. They would have the option to do so after, I believe, either five or seven years. But there was no legal obligation for them to do so. And then if the bank's assets ever fell below a certain threshold, then those AT1 bonds, and this was explicitly written in in the bond prospectus, the way it was written was if the bank's assets fell below a certain threshold, then those AT1 bonds would just become totally worthless and immediately go down to zero or be written down to zero. So that happened, and I believe that wiped out, I want to say it was about $16 billion, if I'm not mistaken, in bondholder money, and a lot of people were upset about that. But again, it was spelled out right there in the prospectus. Anytime you get ready to invest in something, you need to understand what it is you're putting your money in. So I don't have any sympathy there. But this is the problem. When you have these banks that are publicly traded and they get so big so quickly and so artificially, then they become too big to fail, and they're never allowed to be done away with. You can't just have a bank dissolve. It's always got to be, well, some other bank needs to come in and take over these assets and just get that much bigger and have that much more consolidation and concentration of the monetary system. So those are my thoughts on this issue. Again, moving forward, I'm not sure how often I'm going to be able to record. But thank you for your time today and for listening. I hope you all enjoyed it. And I will talk to you all at some point again, and we will get back to our study of the war for Southern Independence.
Little Miss Jeffersonian has made her triumphant arrival, and I can tell you that raising a newborn is expensive, so if y'all don't mind contributing to our diaper fund, I would greatly appreciate that. And don't forget to help fuel the Jeffersonian revolution by using the link in the show notes page to purchase your go-backs today. And all right, with another episode in the books, thank you again for tuning in, and I will talk to y'all next time.